The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning in our Gospel passage from Mark, we find Jesus addressing the subject of ambition. Ambition. The reality is that our sin often causes us to be ambitious for worldly, great, worldly greatness, and to even seek to use God as an adjuvant, as a helper for attaining worldly greatness. However, Jesus is not interested in being used either to attain worldly greatness or as a hedge against worldly failure. But the good news is that Jesus also doesn't condemn our desire for greatness which is God-given. Instead, he redirects our hearts toward kingdom greatness, ambitious to lift others up and driven by faithfulness rather than a fear of failure. A television show that's become popular during the pandemic is Ted Lasso which is about an American football coach who goes to England to coach a European football team, what we know as a soccer team. And while the show includes its fair share of language and vulgarity, which seems pretty much obligatory for any show on television these days, what it does excel at is character development. development. And frankly, teaching some virtue, at least in some realms other than in the realm of romance. Well, in Ted Lasso, there's one character named Nate. Nate has been on quite a journey since the show began. In the first season, Nate began as the team's, the soccer team's kit man, meaning he was responsible for preparing the team's uniforms before the games and the practices. In other words, doing the laundry. Despite this relatively lowly work, 
at least compared to all the other characters in the show who are coaches or players or the owner. Despite that, Nate does have a very good understanding of soccer tactics. And Coach Lasso doesn't treat Nate like someone who's less than him. Instead, the coach would regularly chat with Nate during practice and eventually use some advice Nate offered to change the team's offensive strategy in a way that turns out to be a good one. So at the end of the season, Coach Lasso surprises Nate by promoting him to be an assistant coach, which is quite an, quite an ascent, right? It's a TV show. It's a rags-to-riches story. Nate experiences some success that, frankly, would have been unimaginable to him just months before when he was doing the team's laundry. But in the second season of the show, which just ended, we see Nate doesn't handle this newfound success very well. Once a sweet and humble guy, Nate becomes pompous and arrogant. He gets caught up in reading tweets and articles about himself, both positive and negative. He uses his newfound power as an assistant coach to eviscerate and shame the players when the team doesn't do well. Tears into him. And he treats the guy who replaced him as kit manager of the team's uniforms, he treats him worst of all. Now that Nate has gotten a taste of some success and advancement, though, he can't get enough. He not only wants more, he wants it all. And he's willing to do pretty much anything it takes to step on anyone, even the people who've loved him most, in order to attain it. He begins disrespecting the very coach who gave him the opportunity to be an assistant. And he sets his sights on taking another coach's girlfriend. Well, Nate gives us a glimpse at the corrosive effect that ambition for worldly greatness and success can have on someone's soul. It turns them into a monster. It is our sin that causes us to be ambitious for worldly greatness and frankly blinds us to how that might not actually be what is best for us attaining it. Jesus, though, is not interested in being used either to attain worldly greatness or as a hedge against worldly failure. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't condemn our desire for greatness. Instead, he redirects our hearts to be driven instead by an ambition to lift others up. And we see all of this in today's passage from the Gospel of Mark, which recounts an interaction between Jesus and two of his closest disciples, the, the two brothers, James and John. Like Nate, their lives have recently changed in a drastic way that they never could have expected, right? I mean, back in Mark chapter 1, James and John were minding their own business, working with their father as fishermen. When Jesus walked up to them 
who they didn't know from Adam, walked up and called them to follow him. And in the months since then, maybe a year, I don't know, they've been accompanying Jesus as he's been thronged by crowds, healing the sick, casting out demons. And recently in chapter 9, Jesus even took the two of them, James and John, along with Peter, up a mountain where they saw him be transfigured. What a privilege. They were given a glimpse of his divine identity. So needless to say, by this point in Mark, by chapter 10, James and John have figured out that Jesus is the Messiah promised by God to his people. The Messiah whom all the Jews expected to overturn the Roman Empire's occupation of Israel and establish a reign of his own. So James and John have gone from having each had a life that was completely predictable as fishermen much like their father, and probably his father, to somehow becoming part of Jesus' inner circle. And before that, you know, they became a part of it before his star really started ascending. So now, to James and John, the, the possibilities, the opportunities for their future that once seemed so predictable, now the possibilities seem limitless, right? And so our passage opens with them coming to Jesus and saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, this seems pretty bold. It would seem pretty bold, except for it's basically the way we tend to pray a lot. <laughs> but Jesus asked them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Humoring them, I suppose. And they reply, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You see, James and John think it's only a matter of time before Jesus is the king of Israel. So they're trying to secure a promise of high cabinet posts for each of them before that happens. They've become ambitious for worldly status and success, and now they, that they see the possibility, they want to seize it before anybody else does. Well, I wonder if we can relate to getting caught up in this sort of ambition for worldly success. Maybe not in the precise way that they are for political success, you might call it. But can we get caught up in different versions of that? And if not for ourselves at this point in our lives, perhaps for our children, even our grandchildren. Can we be ambitious for them to achieve worldly success? It's notable that in Matthew's telling of this, as he remembered it, it was not James and John, but their mother who comes to Jesus asking for her two sons to be able to sit on his right and left. And we can just as easily succumb to the temptation of ambition for, of worldly greatness for our kids or grandkids. In the advice we give them, the encouragement we give them, even in how we pray for them, what we pray for. Well, Jesus' response when James and John ask for this, to be seated on his right and left in his glory, his response to them is, you don't know what you're asking for. 
And this is actually true in at least two different ways, right? First of all, to be on Jesus's right and left in his glory is not what they think it is, right? And this is because Jesus's earthly glory will come not in being seated on any king's throne. His earthly glory will come on the cross. Particularly in the gospel of John, Jesus refers to his crucifixion as his glorification. He says, the time has come for me to be glorified the day before his, his crucifixion. And indeed he is in an unexpected way. For it is on the cross that Jesus will be crowned, except with thorns. It is above him on the cross that it would be written, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it is on the cross that Jesus will be mockingly robed in the purple of royalty and mocked by soldiers who would say, Hail, King of the Jews. So for James and John to be on Jesus left and right then at his crucifixion would mean what? It would mean they are being crucified themselves. <laughs> you know, they say, be careful what you ask for, right? Right, they would assume the place that we now know was, was filled by the two thieves, right? To Jesus right and left probably not what they were looking to sign up for when they approached Jesus. And yet in another sense, in the metaphorical sense, taking up their cross is precisely what Jesus intends for them and for us, right? He says it over and over. So picking back up at verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Talking about the cross. And James and John cluelessly say, we can, right? And Jesus said to them, well, then you will, right? He says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. When Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink, he means that if they continue to follow him, they will share in his sufferings. It's part of the gig of being a Christian. So needless to say in all of this, Jesus is making clear that worldly success is not his goal for those who would follow him. And with good reason, because as he points out, worldly success tends to bear bad fruit. Once he's gathered all his disciples together in verse 42, he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now here Jesus is addressing particularly the worldly success that James and John were seeking of worldly political power. He's, he's talking about how it does not tend to be a force for good, right? Either for those who attain it or for the people under their rule. Power corrupts, right? And people may come into power with their souls intact, but it's sure hard to leave it that way. 
So certainly this has something to say to the impulse of Christians even today to align ourselves with political powers. But it's not just power that's a problem. No, worldly success of all kinds can be enormous hindrances to the kingdom life God intends for us. Like we heard Jesus say last week about wealth, which often comes with success, worldly success, right? He said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? You see, from a kingdom perspective, from God's perspective, If any amount of worldly success makes me trust more in myself and to feel less of a need for God, that's not a win, right? That's a loss. So why then is worldly success what we so often covet? Why are we so inclined to pray to Jesus for that, right? Like James and John are essentially praying to him here for ourselves or for our children. Why? It is because of our sin. Our sin causes us to be ambitious for worldly greatness, and it blinds us to the bad fruit that that pursuit will inevitably bear, whether we attain the success or not. But as we can see here, Jesus is not interested in being used, right, as a charm or a resource or a power to attain worldly greatness or as a hedge against worldly failure. Yet the good news is that Jesus doesn't condemn our desire for greatness, but redirects it toward kingdom greatness. Even though Jesus refuses to indulge James and John's ambition for worldly success here, it's important for us to see that ambition itself is not their problem, right? In other words, there is nothing wrong with wanting to be great. Actually, that is a God-given desire, right? This is why in verse 43, we see Jesus actually encouraging and affirming James and John's ambition for greatness. He says, whoever wants to become great, you want to be great? I'm going to tell you how. I'm not going to condemn you for it. I'm going to tell you how. Here's how. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So he's not condemning their ambition for greatness. He's just redirecting its aim to greatness as it is defined in the kingdom of God. And ultimately, kingdom greatness will be demonstrated most fully, of course, in the life of Jesus himself. As Jesus discloses in his final verse here, he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that in the kingdom of God, From God's perspective, greatness is not measured by the amount of success or power or wealth one attains in this world, but rather by the extent to which one lifts others up. The extent that we lift others up determines our greatness in the kingdom. Not to mention that we can actually find more happiness in serving others 
than in living for ourselves. Well, the good news is that so long as his disciples then or any of us now, as long as we keep following Jesus, he will be continually, continuing to gently teach this to us, right? He, he teaches this so gently to James and John. He's gonna continue doing that, that our hearts might continue to believe it more and more and that our lives might begin to look more like his. So though our sin inclines us to be ambitious for worldly greatness and even use God as a, as a helper for attaining it, Jesus is not gonna let us use him to attain worldly greatness or as a hedge against failure. But the good news is he doesn't condemn us for that desire for greatness, but redirects it to kingdom greatness rather than, you know, kingdom greatness of, of lifting others up to be driven by faithfulness rather than fear of failure. Now, I, I want, that's really what I want to get to before I wrap up today. One more part of this that frankly, maybe even more pertinent or important than anything I've said so far. And that is the impact that, that these concepts have on failure, on worldly failure. One of the most powerful fears many of us carry, many of us, and have carried most of our lives, is a fear of worldly failure, a fear of failure. I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hands. I'm on that list, I'll tell you. It only makes sense though, given the world, the society that we live in. Tim Keller observed that <clears throat> while the family used to be a haven in a heartless world, kind of a counterbalance to the dog-eat-dog -dog areas of life. Now, in the Western world today, family has become what he calls the nursery where the craving for success is first cultivated. We're taught to seek it above anything, worldly success. We're taught in American society to place our worth and how much the world considers us a success. Plain and simple, end of story. That is, that is the ultimate end, really, of kind of the American dream myth, right? So if that's true, it only makes sense. If we make worldly success our idol, it only makes sense that worldly failure is going to be then what we fear the most, what we are most terrified of. So if you deal with a fear of worldly failure, you probably come by it real honest, right? We all know Jesus was a failure in the world's eyes, right? Our Lord, the one we have said we want to follow, the world deemed him a failure. 
didn't it? It treated him like a failure, as today's Isaiah passage predicts, assigning him a grave among the wicked. It deemed him a failure. In the book on seven principles for success that you'll probably find at Barnes and Noble, we're not going to find the teachings of Jesus, right? We're not going to find his teachings of love, loving one's enemies, of seeking to become a servant of all, and we're definitely not going to find his teachings on the dangers of wealth, right? The world has said, what is he talking about? What a nutcase. And our hearts may say that too, right? I'm with you, Jesus, until you get to that stuff. Like, come on. I've been told my whole life, I've got to be a success. I can't be a failure. This is why Jesus is preparing his disciples in this passage. He's preparing them for being seen by the world as failures. Because faithfulness to Jesus is not likely to lead to the world celebrating us, at least not for long, right? And so the decision before us is what are we going to let drive us? Well, friends, I can tell you that seeking faithfulness to Jesus above all, that is where freedom is found. Worldly success and its other half, fear of failure, them are some slave drivers right there. Some slave drivers. And they won't ever let up. And yet, I mean, I'm sympathetic. I don't think one sermon is going to mean we can completely cast that idol out. It's deep but it might put us on the track. It's only when we cast aside the idol of worldly greatness and believe in Jesus' unconditional love for us, it's only then that we can begin to accept the possibility of failure, right? That we can begin to accept that there are gonna be times when we will fail to achieve what the world would define as success. And we can begin to accept that without feeling like it'll be the end of the world, like we've been taught possibly that it will be, right? It's only once we receive Christ's unconditional love for us and believe in it, in it on this count that, that we can be open to the fact that if we don't achieve every goal that our grandiose hearts can dream up, right, that that might even be a good thing, Right? that we can begin to accept that failure is part of being human. And yet God can use even our failures, right? Worldly failures, well, all failures, for good. You know, earlier I questioned whether worldly success can really be considered success at all from a Christian perspective if it causes us to trust more in ourselves and feel less need for God. But the flip side is the case as well, right? If some failure to achieve worldly success ultimately causes us or our loved one to turn to God, to trust in him more, I think God would call that a win. He'd call it a win. Would we call it a win? It's tough to get there, right? Friends, Jesus is not willing for us to use him, though, 
to attain worldly greatness or to be a hedge against worldly failure. But the good news is that as long as we continue following him, he will seek to redirect our ambitions towards lifting others up and to be driven not by a fear of failure, but by a drive for faithfulness, desire for faithfulness, ambition for faithfulness. So what do we want to drive us as we move forward and go out from here? Worldly success and fear of failure, door number one, right? Or faithfulness to Christ, door number two. Is that a work that you're willing to ask God to begin or continue in your heart today? Are we willing to ask him that? What do we want for our kids and for those we love? Can we begin to pray for, for God's best, for God's will for them above all? What do we want for this parish? You know, there's all sorts of ideas out there about what a successful church is, right? This many people, this many programs, this much money in the bank. But it would seem to me that Jesus thinks the greatness of a church is determined quite simply by the extent that it lifts others up. Will you join me in praying for these things? I invite you to bow your heads. Lord, for so many of us, worldly success has been our God for so long. And he is a slave master who will never be satisfied. God, would you begin to take that idol from our hearts? Would you begin to root out our, our absolute terror at the prospect of worldly failure and replace it with the desire to be faithful to you whatever the cost? Lord, we pray for the children and grandchildren you may have put under our care and declare that the best thing that could ever happen to them or for them is not attaining riches or degrees or the life that the Joneses have, but trusting more fully in you. And so we ask that for them. And we repent of any way we have contributed to them believing they need worldly success more than anything. And finally, Lord, we pray for this parish, which you have so mercifully sustained for more than a century. Lord, may our future, though, be characterized by a greater concern for lifting others up, not survival for its own sake. May our ambition be to be more like you, and will you show us how? Help us to be concerned less with numbers and buildings and even more with becoming disciples who are more like you. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.